Doodle bug, doodle bug, come out of here. Your house is on fire. Doodle bug, doodle bug, come out of here. What difference does it make yeah. if entire cultures disappear? Mm-mm. Right front tire exploded just as I turned down into term one. They are invisible. Then what the church says is what we want to live by. What y'all doing in heaven today? Uh, helping people build agency, helping people take control of their lives. And now I got it. Now I know what to do. Anytime it happens in the future, I got the tool. The sounds and voices of the South create a rich and tangled mixture, flirting with and pushing against ideas of the past. Knowing the South today and conceiving Southern futures is about listening to people shaped by and shaping places in the present. Southern futures. Reimagine the American South. Welcome to Southern Futures. I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion with the Center for the Study of the American South. I'm a former broadcast news journalist and current doctoral student in public history. Through distinctive storytelling and humble listening, Southern Futures seeks solutions for the issues in our region. We're having conversations about place and about the future. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Courtney Rivard, Director of the Digital Literacy and Communications Lab and Teaching Associate Professor in English and Comparative Literature here at UNC. She studies how narratives, stories, influence notions of Southern identity and how that unfolds in the space of archives. Hello, Courtney. Hi there. Thank you so much. Courtney, your current project explores Depression-era narratives, the way these stories persuade society, how we preserve those stories, and also how those stories shape our memory as a community. Your project, Voice of a Nation, Mapping Documentary Expression in New Deal America, recovers the history of the Southern Life History Project, and that's part of the Federal Writers Project, along with the WPA Slave Narratives and the Southern Writers Project. It's is really about a shift uh, in the way that people were thinking about capturing ideas of stories and how those stories could be made to be authentic and represent kind of everyday people. Um, and in the 1930s, um, uh, as the Great Depression was unfolding and people were trying to recover from that, uh, there was a real kind of shift in how people captured stories and ideas of what real meant. What did it mean to really, real, like how could you capture real authentic life? And um, people turned to those stories as a way, um, and particularly in the Southern Life uh, History Project, as a way to kind of create social change. That um, if, if only people could hear stories of, of, of people that were like them and how life and the complicatedness of life and the complexity then maybe that could um, affect change. That could get people motivated to hear those narratives, hear those stories, here's the way they resonate with their own lives and how that might change and kind of face the problems um, that were plaguing the South and, and the country as a whole. Some of the kind of amazing writers who came out of that time, like Zora Neale Hurston, at this kind of time where we were trying to re-envision what the United States and what America meant in the backdrop of fascism coming across uh, Europe, um, the United States wanted to, uh, or many progressives in the United States, wanted to think about ways that um, American pluralism could be celebrated. Courtney, when I look at the 
era that you are studying, the Great Depression, some of the events we're seeing from that era seem to be in play again. You mentioned the rise of fascism in Europe then and now, uh, where we see a health crisis and then other unrest here in the States uh, then and now. So perhaps not repetition exactly, but a different version of issues that we have seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly um, living through this moment of pandemic and now the responses in very real ways of, of protest for um, inequity and racism. These, uh, I, I feel like when I go and, and working and, and reading the life histories, it feels very much that it resonates, right? That, that folks were grappling with how to be and live in this, these moments of extreme hardship where everything that they thought they knew was feeling like it was changing. And what I feel um, looking at a, at a historical approach and trying to understand and make sense of our time by looking at, at history, which is, you know, what um, historians are concerned with, right? Like, how, how can we learn from the past? And what I find particularly profound about the life histories is that they reveal a really complicated story. And these stories, if you read them, can help you to be a humble listener because you have to listen through uh, the complicated complexities of the writer and see what that exchange may have been like uh, between the interviewee and the power involved in telling one's story to someone who you may or may not know. And uh, just kind of through it all, there's, uh, there's hope and there's resilience um, at the same time that there's struggle. Um, and I can imagine how these stories, um, even when I read them today, make me feel you know, more sympathetic and empathetic with the folks that were telling their stories um, and makes me want to better understand. And so I think the stories that we tell today, uh, I hope, um, have that same impact. about stories and narratives. So these stories in the Southern Writers Project that you're looking at, uh, Courtney, were collected throughout the South, including North Carolina. Please share some of those stories with us. Yeah, I will. Um, so uh, I've chosen two stories to share with you today. And of all the stories that the life histories that I could um, discuss, um, I wanted to kind of bring it back home uh, to my home, uh, which is in Durham, um, which is just a, a, a short drive away from Chapel Hill. So I'm going to share one from um, Durham and then another one from Chapel Hill. And the first story that I'm going to, uh, life history I'm going to talk to you about is um, of Ava Hardinson, who's from an East Durham cotton mill. And a lot of folks know Durham um, because of tobacco, but they don't know as much that there was a, a really strong uh, mill industry. And there's a lot of tension that was going on during the 1930s between agrarian kind of notions about needing to work the land and the idea um, of industrialism and what that meant for life and culture in the South at the time. And the story of Ava Hardinson is actually a, a little bit of a migration story as well. Her family was uh, in Wilmington, which is on the coast of North Carolina. And her husband uh, worked as a boxcar carpenter for a railroad. And he was in a union. And he was feeling like it was not, um, there were, the working conditions were just not right, um, not just. And so he joined in, in a, um, a union strike. And that um, resulted in his family basically being ousted from Wilmington. And so he ended up in East Durham Mill. 
Uh, and the story is by a writer who, uh, by the name of Ida Moore, and she was actually um, graduated from Winthrop in uh, South Carolina and then came to teach. So she was a school teacher um, turned federal writer. And this is how um, Ida Moore quoted uh, Ava Hardinson. She says this, my life has been hard by doing what seemed to be right. Me and Otis will live at the mill as long as we can get work, I guess. And I don't mind it at all. If he could get regular work and a good wage, I'd just as soon be here as anywhere else. But my boys hate it. And I pray for the day when they'll be able to find something else to do. Um, I'm going to read one other story. And this, again, is from Chapel Hill. Um, and this story was written by William O. Foster, who um, actually was a graduate student studying history at uh, UNC Chapel Hill at the time. And this is a story of Virgil Johnson, who's a tenant farmer in Chapel Hill. And he's living on the same land um, in Chapel Hill. And it's actually um, interesting in that um, it's uh, near Piney Mountain. Um, folks might know where that is. It's not really a mountain uh, here in Chapel Hill. But, um, but I often uh, ride my bicycle by there. It's a very beautiful farmland. And um, he's living on the same land that his parents lived on, but as slaves, under the same family that owned the land and used to own his, his family. And this is what he says. And he's talking about feeling like um, the land uh, is like a powerful place, uh, but he's struggling really hard with getting enough to pay for himself because he's a tenant farmer and for his family. And um, he had planted a bunch of crops um, of cotton, but the bull weevil, which is this kind of parasite, um, had taken it. And he only got one, one bale. Um, and, uh, but in the story, he's still feeling like really strong and resilient. And you can see this power in his voice. But he switches in his story and he starts to talk about other um, larger political issues. And I feel like this really um, gives insight um, into his life. He says, and I quote, no, I don't vote. I used to until they fixed the franchise up. About 40 years ago, I was voting and they passed a law making the voters explain the Constitution and they put in the grandfather clause. I couldn't fit in with that. Knew it was just an excuse to keep us from voting and I ain't voted since. If I was to vote today, I'd vote for Roosevelt. I don't care if he's a Democrat. He helps the poor man and the farmer. Listening to Virgil Johnson, and in fact, listening to both of those stories, Ava's also is really powerful, especially when we think of politics and social issues. Virgil's, though, for me, is really striking. And his words could be something someone says today. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what these stories are, right? Um, that it was a time of, of intense hardships and people fighting for social change and just trying to live, right? And be and have a family. And that's the power of stories is you can find, you find yourself in these stories and try to look to the way that they had demonstrated power and the way that you can do that as well. When you talked about Virgil Johnson uh, and you ride your bike by the land that he was talking about, is it a different experience for you now when you pass by that same land, now that you know this voice and the words that are connected to it? I always see these mailboxes that kind of announce Piney Mountain Road. And now when I go by there, I can't help to like see the land and think about, um, think about the stories that lived on that land, right? And I just kind of go by it and it feels intense um, because uh, all the stories that have been told um, all the struggles that have been had. And now, you know, I can ride my, my bicycle by it. But it helps me to keep me a little bit grounded 
right? To not just keep on flying down that hill once I get to the top, but to think, think about all those people before that have struggled and have made life happy and difficult, uh, but they, they, you know, they existed there. Okay, searching multiple archives is not easy work given the different finding aids, keyword searches that are unique to each archive. Courtney, what are the methods you're using in your work to make it easier for all of us to find stories like Virgil Johnson's, uh, stories that would otherwise be silenced? For me in particular, digital humanities methods and quantitative methods can help in listening and tracing um, what seems to be a silence. And that's part of what our project is doing with the Southern Life uh, History Project. What we're trying to do is to use quantitative methods to what we call uh, reading the archive at a distance. And that doesn't mean just at a distance, but using the close readings that are kind of the bedrock of methodology of the humanities, together with using the affordances of digital methods. The project that I'm working on, and I must say that it's a collaborative project with um, Dr. Uh, Lauren Tilton and Dr. Uh, Taylor Arnold, who are both at the University of Richmond. Each um, life history has been digitized. So what we're doing um, with the Southern Life History Project is um, two types of computational um, practices. One is mostly kind of just a basic metadata analysis. We can think of that as kind of categorizing data, the same way you do uh, when you want to find a Netflix movie, right? You want, what type of movie do you want? Um, So it's kind of like, what type of data do you want? Uh, The occupation, the race, uh, sometimes the gender um, of the interviewee. And then they give um, sometimes a couple of keywords that they found were helpful with the interview. And so we've used that metadata um, and applied it to all of the life histories. And so then this allows us to think about larger questions. So now we can map these and say, okay, which of these life histories occurred in Durham or in Chapel Hill? Um, How many of these were women? How many were women writers? And we're doing a couple different forms of text analysis. We're able to look at all the words instantly of all the life histories. And what becomes really interesting with this is that we see that different writing styles were employed for different types of interviewees. And what it demonstrates to us, um, which is really powerful, is that African-American interviewees were predominantly written with written dialect. Toni Morrison calls this I dialect. And what this means is it's the kind of purposeful misspelling to uh, demonstrate the otherness of the interviewee. And so it's so powerful that it actually clouds our ability to see the other topics that um, African-American interviewees are, are speaking about. understanding the materials that you're reading for your profession and your research, but I also want to know on a personal level, what types of things are you reading now or stories that you find that you're going back to time and time again? Would you read something for us and tell us why you selected this? I really love Southern cultures. Um, I actually use this journal all the time in class. The quick passage that I would like to read for you here today um, has to go back to the central concern that I'm always thinking about, right, which is archives and the power of archives um, to tell stories and, um, and then what stories are allowed to be told. 
Corita Brown's, and it's, this is titled On the Participatory Archive, The Formation of the Eastern Kentucky African-American Migration Project. And so she's telling her story um, of doing her doctoral research. And she is really interested in actually going back to her own communities and her, um, her own um, family's stories of um, kind of migration experiences from the coal mines of Kentucky. And when she's there, she's kind of struggling with her home discipline in sociology. And she's, she's finding like that's not working. And she, um, she says that it, it has this chilling ability to sterilize the lived experience of the people she's talking to. And so she totally about faces and starts to pursue oral histories. But when she does that, she realized she has all these materials that should be in an archive, but aren't there. And so she actually teams up with the Southern Historical Collection at UNC to create a participatory archive. And this is a really, really powerful type of archive because it gives ownership uh, and power to the people who donated material. And so she's talking about, um, in this passage, about um, the way that she's feeling when she's listening to people's oral histories who have migrated out of the Kentucky area. So this is what she says. As time went on, it became clear to me that they shared a collective sense of urgency to preserve their history in their archive, their memories, their nicknames, their performances and rituals remains a unique and rich history that lies virtually untold. Now at an age where the reality of finitude is ever present in their consciousness, many of them lay awake at night wondering if the traces that they left will, as scholar Michel Foucault puts it, be erased like a face drawn in sand at the edge of the sea. Yeah, and finding new ways that um, challenge traditional notions of, of the way archives should be um, to make those, those stories known um, in a way that they want them to be. Folks who want to read more of Corita Brown's article, visit southerncultures.org and search participatory archives. I want to wrap up the show with some thoughts from you, Courtney, on how you personally and through your work, how you reimagine the American South. I mean, I always am going back to stories like my reimagination of the American South would be a chance to really hear each person's story. Because I feel um, I feel like when you when you sit and you hear a narrative that, you know, comes from somebody's own point of view, their own voice, that you connect with it and you see, as I said earlier, yourself in their stories. And that creates a connection because you see you see how connected our lives are and that at the end of the day, we all really want the same thing, right? Uh, A safe place to live. Well said, Courtney. Thank you for a delightful conversation. For our listeners, we appreciate your interest in this program. Be sure to join us for our next episode. For executive producer, Dr. Melinda Maynard-Lowry, associate producer, Ellie Little, and sound editor, Mark Meyer, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, new collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.